Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to this podcast number 641. Uh, I will be performing in Chicago this weekend at the Athenaeum Theater. The Windy Apple. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that's the funniest thing I've heard all week. I am, I think tickled would be the word, Jonah Ray. <laughs> I'll be performing in the... <laughs> On February 27th, uh, two shows. Go to funcomfortabletour.com. City of brotherly hugs. <laughs> the, the, the Sunshine Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> The Mile Low City. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good, uh, good times. Do you have anything to to that you want to let people know about? No, I don't think so. The Meltdown with Jonah and Kamel. The Meltdown with Jonah and Kamel. Uh, every Wednesday at Meltdown Comics. And uh, we're getting gearing up for our second season on Comedy Central. So great. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, oh, I'm... Uh, I'm co-releasing a uh, the uh, cassette version of uh, Kyle Clark's album, Pizza Night. Pizza you sure Night. Sure are. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm helping him put that out. Fantastic, Kyle. Yeah, and Wiener Records as well. Yes. Any anything on the Nerdist Community Corkboard? Uh, yeah, uh, I got a good one here that is uh, from Trent Murray. Uh, his wife lost her job to fibromyalgia. Uh, which is a disease, and that's no good. But she actually started doing, like, she went crazy just being stuck sick at home. Yeah, these are supposed to be fun, right? Fun activities? <laughs> no, but it's good because, like, it's, she started an Etsy page where she makes stuff, and she does arts and crafts stuff that she's selling, and she does, like, dice holders that look like animals for, like, RPG stuff. Oh, that's rad. And it's called, her page is Etsy backslash shop backslash owls and the letter N, orchids. You sure you mean backslash? You mean the forward one instead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, backslash is for local files. <laughs> you mean the forward one instead, or any of the other options of slashes? Oh, like, I went to all these backslashes, and I couldn't find this woman's Etsy store on my local drive. Yeah. Uh, so, so do the the the. the it's again HTTP colon. So it's on Etsy. Her her Etsy name is Owls and Ostr or Orchids. I keep wanting to say ostrich. Owls and orchids. And the letter and. N or and? N. The letter Owls and like orchids. In and out. So that's good. So, yeah, so, you're, so by going to the Tessie you're actually supporting someone who is making the best out of a yeah. nasty situation. And, it's, and it's, uh, she's got cool stuff. Good. So I'm a big fan of okay, that. Okay, what else cool. on the corkboard? Uh, something else. Uh, I think this is rad, <laughs> uh, which is uh, uh, Typecon. 
Yes. It's a type of, it's a, a like a typeface convention. It's a typeface convention. <laughs> wow. That's um, fantastic. And I hear a rumor that Helvetica might be coming in to be the guest of honor. Hell fucking did, you, did, but, did they say that or did no, you make I made that, that up. Okay, just checking. Um, but uh, uh, typecon.com, T-Y-P-E-C-O-N dot C-O-M uh, is uh, uh, the website for it. Uh, it just It's in Denver this year, so you can go to Denver and then good, look good at typefaces. That's, right? I would do I'm that. super down for this. I think it sounds uh, like pretty cool. Like, you know, can I tell you, sometimes when I'm staying in a hotel and then you'll, you know, like they'll leave a plate of cookies or something and with like a, you'll get a note from the manager that'll say like, welcome to the hotel. I hope you enjoy your stay. Some of these people have the best handwriting that I've ever seen. And I always, I always think I'm going to go down and give them a hundred dollars to write out the alphabet in upper and lower case. And I'm going to, I'm going to vectorize it. Oh, that'd be rad. That'd be pretty cool. But uh, I haven't done that yet. Could I uh, plug a personal thing? Oh, well, is it a leak? I, I kind uh, of already did. Uh, yeah, what do you want to plug? I, I have a podcast. What? Right? Uh, it's called This Is Rad. It'll never been work. working on it What's for about six months now. And uh, I'm real proud of it. I do it with Matthew Burnside. Yeah. He's my co-host with it. We talk about things that we're excited about. And it's a podcast about things people have enthusiasm for. Oh, my gosh. the internet's full of people who shit on everything forever. So we're trying to bring people who enjoy things. The only person who seemingly has more enthusiasm for life than me. Right. Kyle Clark. It's a good time being this full of uh, enthusiasm. Kyle Clark is rad on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, this is rad. When's podcast. it dropping? Uh, it's out weekly. It comes out on Tuesdays. It's on iTunes and Stitcher. Congratulations. We did a fun one where we went to the Renaissance Fair with a mobile recording unit and just like walked around and talked to people in character and, and made a whole fun day out of it. It was a good time. Good job. Thank you. It's fun. We, it, fuck yeah, positivity, Kyle. I'm, oh, I'm, you're like singing to the choir. I'm tired of people complaining about stuff. This episode is uh, Brian Cox, who is a... Speaking of positivity, this might be one of my favorite episodes you guys have ever done. Really? I was not here when you guys recorded it, and for the longest time I was like, oh, we're having that actor on. And when it was the scientist, I, the conversation when you guys get into like the quantum theory stuff, I was riveted. This is fascinating. Definitely probably one of my top five Nerdist podcasts. Brian Cox is it? Well, that pleases me to hear. Maybe you could turn it on your podcast. Yeah, maybe well. <laughs> we'll just start maybe eating, eating our own tail. <laughs> uh, but Brian is a, is a scientist and a, and a presenter and, uh, and a writer, and he works at CERN. <laughs> and he's uh, brilliant, and he has a podcast called The Infinite Monkey Cage. InfiniteMonkeyCage.com is the website. They're touring. It's Brian and then uh, a British comic by the name of um, Robin Ince. So Brian was here. Uh, Robin did not show up, but right before he got here... This better be good. I got a text. Hey, uh, is it all right if my friend comes along Ugh, whose name lame. happens to be Eric Idle? Oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. So Eric Idle happened to be <laughs> here and just sat in on the podcast and was awesome. <laughs> Uh, Eric was here when we did the What About Dick panel with uh, with him and Billy Connolly and Eddie Izzard and uh, and so uh, so he sat in and we just talked about science. We fucking talked about science with Brian and Eric Idle. What an insane! That's like a weird fever day. dream you'd have. Yeah, I had the craziest dream. That would never happen. <laughs> well, it did happen. <laughs> uh, and they were fucking phenomenal. So it was. I mean, it was an honor to have them. Eric's going to be on one of the uh, Infinite Monkey Cage live shows. Ooh. So again, InfiniteMonkeyCage.com. <laughs> Nerds Podcast Number Six Forty One with Brian Cox and Eric Idle. Now entering Nerdist.com.
It's happening. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Welcome to the podcast, Brian Cox. And you've brought a friend with you, I see. Yeah, my landlord. <laughs> oh, yeah. It seemed appropriate. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't afford to stay in a hotel, so I snoop around. I wander around Hollywood, knocking on doors. This <laughs> was the first person who opened it. Well, I think it's very so nice. That, uh, and, what, and what is your name, sir? Uh, my name's Eric Idle. Yeah, uh, I run a small boarding house in Hollywood. <laughs> For wayward physicists? Or, or wayward scientists uh, <laughs> in search of selling tickets. The home for the bewildered scientists. <laughs> you do or you do not run a boarding house unless it is observed uh, by Ooh, the physicists. True. Yeah. So you're, simultaneously, you do and don't run a boarding wow, house. That's linear right. superposition. Yes. Super, oh, it's starting linear early. Linear superposition. A linear superposition, yeah. yes. It's, it's a, wonderful to meet you, by the way. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a fan of your work, and I also... Uh, I, I, I'm aware of your music career. <laughs> really? Yes, of course. That's, that goes back a long way. It's my first visit to LA, actually. So, so you might be referring to D-Ream or, or Dare, the, the previous band I was in. Yes. We recorded an it's... album here in 1987, I think it was, or maybe yeah. 86. Which album did you record here? It was Out of the Silence. Wow. Which was... Uh, at actually mainly at Joni Mitchell's house because her husband at the time was a, a great musician called Larry Klein and he co-produced it. Did you knock on doors asking for, to record it? Around, around <laughs> it's been really successful. <laughs> so far you got Joni Mitchell and Eric Idle. Yeah. You should keep walk, knocking on doors. Yeah. <laughs> President Obama. Come on right in. <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, Don't you get past the gate? Yeah, it's easy now. Anyone can get on the White House lawn. It's not hard. Uh, so what, at what point did you decide that you were going to give up music and, and pursue science? It was the other way around, actually. I'd always wanted to be an astronomer, always wanted to do science from the age of four or five, particularly astronomy. And then at the age of 16 or so, I got sort of slightly distracted because I discovered girls after stars, basically. Yes. And then thought, that's, that's interesting. So did my phone just go off then? That's it maybe did. How yeah. unprofessional is that? There we are. So, yeah, so, so, so I got distracted slightly into music. And I, only, I was never a musician. I learned to play in order to be in a band. I had no interest in the art of music. Wow. I had no interest. I, I just wanted to be in a band. And, so, and for, bizarrely, it was the knocking on doors thing again, actually. This is true. <laughs> this bit's actually true. Down the road from me in Oldham, in, near Manchester... Um, the, the keyboard player of Thin Lizzy moved in. <laughs> and so I, not, I did actually literally knock on his door and give him a demo tape through my dad, actually. I think we'd met him in the pub. So I gave him a demo tape. And then when, when Lizzy split up in sort of 84, 85, whenever it was, he called me up and said, do you want to be in my band? And I was just on my way to university. And I said, yeah, OK, I'll take a year off. And then the band got signed and we... Ended up touring with uh, Jimmy Page. You're sort of like an inverse Forrest Gump, where you're actually incredibly smart, and you still (laughs) stumble across all these bizarre... (laughs) Anti-Gump. You're kind of an anti-Gump. Yeah. And so uh, you did music for a while up until, I think, was the the last one was like 93, maybe? Early 90s? Yeah, the band D-Ream. And then it it came back in 97 when we... um, Tony Blair, of all people, used our song to, to get elected back in 97. And I, 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 always, I have to apologize for that now. <laughs> so I apologize to your listeners. But uh, yeah, so that, that was the, the sort of last thing that I did. And then, um, wow. But I'd, that's the idea. I'd always, be, I'd always wanted to do science. And how, how did you and Eric meet? 
Uh, I, I bumped into him uh, through a mutual friend. Actually, I, I, I want to say I knocked on your door. I think we should perpetuate that myth. You knocked on I my door. Literally yes. knocked on his door. And we were, it was actually from What About Dick? Yes, which is a thing uh, that Arnold was, was laying on at the Orpheum, and he came, it was brought by Joe Boxer, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, an underwear manufacturer. Yeah, you know Joe Boxer. I do. Yeah. 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 Well. We were mutually introduced. <laughs> By an underwear manufacturer. An underwear manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was fun. We, and then Billy Connolly was there. We had a lot of fun. We talked about space immediately, didn't we? Yeah. You've been, and, filming, and with an o- you've been filming with an octopus. That's right. I'd been, yeah, for, for Wonders of Life, a previous series. I'd been, uh, the wonderful underwater sequence with an octopus. And I, I raised my fist to this octopus accidentally. I didn't want to, I wasn't trying to threaten the octopus. But it mimicked what I did. This, this, and, and, and so I started swimming towards it with my fist raised and it raised two of its legs. And so I had a wonderful time with an octopus. So it's the only thing I won't eat. No, I've decided. You didn't uh, fight so, uh, it and go, fuck you, humans rule? Or... Well, yeah, that's oh, a very American okay. attitude. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I thought that's what you were supposed to. Whenever you see a thing that you don't recognize, you're supposed you to beat it. it or eat it. Americans are not really interested. Not interested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to know about it. So you just get talk to it? Get back to it. No, get back to where you came from in that deep I just, ocean. I just love the idea of Eric Idle sitting in the corner for all of our podcasts when we do a slightly American idea. He just leans in and just lets us know. It's not fucking a reading. You don't understand it. He's right. He's right, everyone. <laughs> Can we shoot it? <laughs> so when uh, was the the episode you're working with octopus? The, the octopi, octopi was it was it octopus centric or you were just underwater and you happened to stumble across it's Wonders of Life? It was about that program was about the evolution of. Um, eyes uh, in particular the fact that eyes have evolved many times and, and the octopus's eyes are different to ours in uh, a very interesting way actually the the the, the, the photosensitive cells um, are the same as the ones we have deep in our brains that are a part of our clock so right. our internal clock um, whereas our cells the cells of the type that are in our eyes it uses for a clock so they've reversed around to somewhere in its evolutionary past hundreds of millions of years ago uh, th- these two different kinds of light centers got used for different things in us and the octopus so you mean how eyes are irreducibly complex and Jesus made eyes 7500 years ago no, is that not, what you mean that's not what I mean at oh, all oh okay, okay. 6500 years 6500 years ago <laughs> yes no yes it's 5000 years ago <laughs> it's 5000 yeah. years ago but they're, they're a very good example of, 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 of a, an intelligent organism that evolved completely separately to us. If you trace a common ancestor back between us and an octopus, it's, it's 500 million years ago or something like that. It's a long, long, long time ago. But yet you've got this thing that's relatively intelligent. It's got uh, eyes which are as different to ours, but as good in many ways. So it's a fascinating animal. It's really good at picking the World Cup. Remember that octopus? Yes, that's right. That was a misunderstanding of statistics. An octopus that spoke German. Yeah. yeah. It's it's already, you know. An, an octopus. You say, raise one of your legs, depending on which team will win. Yeah. We'll get it right. You know, mm. half the time. That's surprising. 50% of the time, the coin toss came up heads. <laughs> Can you imagine? 50% of the time. Yeah. Well, they're saying it's now not... The flip of a coin is not exactly 50-50 due to, I just read a study today, due to the weight of the coin being heavier on the head side. Depending which coin, obviously. Yeah, they were going with Whose the head has quarter. been chiseled into it. Yeah, yeah it was Washington. Got Washington a big has head. a big head. Huge. Oh. And those wooden teeth yep. that are weighing it down every time you flip the coin. And that poofy wig. The English dentist. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
every time, so when you go into Wonders of Life, mm-hmm. is are you is there a certain amount that you feel like you already know, or are you going into it as inquisitive as someone who would be watching the series? And your whole goal is to learn as much as you can during the process. No, I mean Wonders of Life is, is a good example of me learning a lot because it's a it's a physicist take on biology essentially that series, and it came from a book. There's a book by Schrödinger. So we're talking about linear superpositions. Mm-hmm. There's a book by Schrodinger called What is Life that he wrote uh, when he was in Dublin in the 40s. And so it's a, a, after he'd done all his work on quantum mechanics, he started thinking about the, the, the sub-central paradox of life, which is how do you get these ordered structures, things like human brains, from the laws of nature, which the, the basic law of physics, second law of thermodynamics, says that everything tends to disorder. So, so how is it? that in a universe that is on the, on the large scale tending to disorder, you can get these islands of order that are so complex, things like human brains. And so it's a fascinating book. And in it, he predicted the existence of DNA. Or he said that there has to be, uh, he called it an aperiodic crystal. So there must be some molecule that carries information from generation to generation. And Crick and Watson, who I think you knew, Eric, didn't you? Were you, were you I've met Watson. Yeah. They were mistaken for Watson. I was mistaken said, by, for Dr. Watson by Deepak Chopra. How far-seeing was he at the time? And he mistook me for Deepak. Oh, Dr. Watson, I was such a big fan of yours when I was in college becoming a doctor. I said, you, you're talking to me, right? He's 85. You know, I was... <laughs> Does not abuse Deepak too much. No, 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 he's, yeah, no, no let, let's. <laughs> let's. Let's. Yeah, I tweeted to Deepak actually. I said you should come to the the, the Infinite Monkey Cage, which I'm also your podcast to promote the, the podcast yeah. and the live shows, which are going to be, I should say, here in LA. They're, they're going to be uh, the uh, 12th of March. Excellent. Come and see us live. But I was promoting it to Deepak and Eric. I'm going to be in it. What? Yeah. You're going to be in it for I'm going to be singing the song for him. Which song are you going to I sing? I wrote the theme song for them. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Oh You're going to do it live. You're going to do it live. It's recorded with me and Jeff Lynn. Oh, oh yeah. More, Hello. It gets more crazy. Yeah. It's in the style. You won't know. George Formby. So you can do a, George, a brief George Formby impression, can you? Not here, no. <laughs> it's not really. Quantum mechanics. <laughs> well, but you know, yeah. they can play the track. They can get the track and play it in. Oh, that's true. So there's a, there's a very the an old um, English entertainer called George Formby who used to play ukulele. And so we have a theme song which is about quantum mechanics, inflationary <laughs> cosmology, and the great existential questions in the style of a 1920s ukulele player produced by Jeff Lynne. Of course. So why wouldn't you? That's a lot of layering. That is a lot of layering. Yeah. But I said, to, I said to Deepak, I tweeted to him, because he tweeted to me because I said he was a diamond-encrusted guru or something. Because he, was, he has those glasses with diamonds in them, and I thought that was not really a guru-like behavior. Right. And, he, and, he, and he, he sent a tweet to me saying something like, I'll give you vast amounts of money if you'll come to my conference. And I said, money can't buy you knowledge, Deepak. You should know that. Oh! As a guru. Um, but then I sent him a tweet and said, said, you're welcome to come to the Infinite Monkey Cage live shows. Um, the tickets are available. You know, he's, got, he's got diamonds in his glasses. He can yeah. afford to buy a ticket for my show. Right. So, uh, but he hasn't, as far as I know, he hasn't bought one yet. Maybe what? He'll surprise wow. me. Maybe he'll surprise me. I said you might learn something about quantum theory and, and how, how, how woo-free it is. Did, you, uh, <laughs> did he respond? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, a, 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 a vicious cloud of unguru-like vitriol. Really? Yeah. I was oh, not aware of this. Uh, oh, he gets very annoyed on Twitter. Why? But he's when, supposed to be peaceful, I thought. 
His, his, his piece is uh, one tweet deep. <laughs> oh, shit. One, one just stick deep. Wow. Just, yeah. I don't That's know. incredible. I, I, I would love to see a... I would love to see a... a vitriol, well, I can do it now, actually. All I have to do is tweet him and call him a woo merchant. And I get a <laughs> <laughs> we can probably do it live on air. Delightful. <laughs> I love yeah. this. Is that fun for you to watch? Is it fun for you just to sort of poke a little bit? Yeah, I love it. I, I do love it. I mean, that's the idea behind Monkey Cage in a way, because it's comedians and, and scientists together. So it's, it's an absolutely, it's biased. Uh, absolutely, the BBC sometimes struggle with this, because it's an utterly biased show. It's biased towards reality. Mm-hmm. So it's a show that's biased towards reason, reality, um, critical thinking, and it has no time for any kind of drivel and nonsense sure. and that's the, that's the tension that sits at the heart of the show so we have the scientists and we have a comedian usually and, and we we that that i'm trying we, we get letters of complaint all the time we even get complaint about the title we got a, a letter of complaint that said that we were um promoting cruelty to animals by calling the program the infinite monkey cage because they were t- taking it as a literal monkey cage that would be able, even if it was literal it would it's roomy <laughs> because it's infinite. Arguably, the universe could be considered to be an infinite cage. Could it be a TARDIS? We got into that. We got a, we got a great um, we got a great letter saying you are referring to the Darwinian myth. The Darwinian myth. Sure. That 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 um, that monkeys. If you got monkeys and typewriters and sat them down, right. then, then then they would type the complete works of out. Shakespeare. Right. And they said there's an experiment been done. And my friend Robin Ince said, I like the experiment. It's data. We like data. Let's have a look. So we, we looked further down the letter and it said <laughs> there was an experiment done in, in a zoo in Alabama or somewhere where they, they got 10 monkeys and uh, 10 typewriters and put them there for a week. And all they did was shit on them. <laughs> so there you go. Therefore, it's all disproven and, and evolution didn't happen. Or we, they're we saying got, that they no, thought Shakespeare was shit. Maybe yeah. They were making <laughs> we, a very artistic... Yeah, and my, my, we said, no, there's a difference. There's a, there's a scale issue here that 10 is not close to infinity. Right. Right. There's not, it's not an incremental process where if you get 10 monkeys, you get a leaflet. <laughs> and if you get 100, <laughs> you get kind of, you know, a, what's that novel, that, that, that thing of the Shades of Grey thing? That's the Fifty Shades of Grey, you sure. That if you have yeah. 100 monkeys. And it, and I do believe have, that monkeys wrote that. that yeah. yeah, I'm on board for that. How many? Hundred one, one, one monkey wrote that. One monkey. Yeah, it was, it had to be tied up to write tie, right. it. A couple monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> it had to be forced. The monkey didn't want to do it. Nah. <laughs> yes. No one's going to buy this. No. Repurposed so, Twilight fan fiction. Uh, I, I, this idea of humanism, I think, is very interesting, and I think it's something that people, if they don't really, if they don't believe in the sort of uh, the religious upbringings that a lot of us have, but I think it's a, it's a, the idea that the. Um, that we as, as humanity are really sort of the the kind of magical, not literally magical, but like that's that's where we should really focus our belief system is in humanity. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, the the, the series I've just finished actually with the BBC was called Human Universe, and it's a uh, it's a uh, it became it's a cosmology series, but it became a, a love letter to the human race in a sense because. The, the, the central idea was that it, what perspective does cosmology give you? Well, uh, on one side, obviously, it makes you feel very small and insignificant. I mean, there are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, 350 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and the universe may well and, and almost certainly does extend way beyond that and could be infinite in extent. So, so we're absolutely physically insignificant, it's true. But you can make an argument, especially from the biological side, actually, that intelligent civilizations are, are, are extremely rare things. And you can actually make an argument that there may be only one at the moment in the Milky Way. 
There's right. undoubtedly, there must be thousands of civilizations out there in the universe, millions perhaps, an infinite number. But in the Milky Way, in the 200 billion star systems that we have access to at some level, there, there could be only one. And I, I, that's an interesting thing to turn around and say, well, therefore we're valuable. It could be that this is the only place in a galaxy where there's any meaning. And we talk about, you know, the, the kind of nonsensical versions of the search for meaning and for Deepak and things like this. But actually, the, the undoubtedly, meaning exists here on Earth because it means something to me. It right. means something to you. We, we have families, we love people, there's meaning here. So, so I think, actually, cosmology and biology and our view of the universe now can actually make us feel extremely valuable. And then that becomes almost political then because you say, well, what should we do if we're the only place where there's an intelligent civilization amongst 200 billion stars in a galaxy? How should we look after ourselves? How should that knowledge inform our behavior? Um, and so I think that cosmology is often misunderstood and astronomy is often misunderstood. It's actually John Updike said it was, it's what we now have instead of theology. It has, um, it, it has less terror but none of the comforts. <laughs> <That's astronomy. laughs> um, but actually maybe maybe it does have comfort because there's comfort in our possible rarity i should say that if you're an astronomer it's interesting talk to astronomers then recently the, the, the kepler data from the kepler space telescope suggests that there are of order 20 billion earth-like planets in the milky way galaxy by earth-like i mean rocky and uh, in the right, the right distance from the star to be the called, the habitable zone. zone, habitable zone. Yeah. Yes. So, so whilst they might not be Earth-like, they're at least potentially Earth-like. It's, the, the data suggests maybe one in five or one in ten stars out of the two hundred billion has a planet like that. So astronomers, the, the SETI community, for example, will say, well, look at that. And it's true. We've got data now that the, probably all stars pretty much have solar systems and maybe one in ten of them have Earth-like planets potentially around them. So therefore, life may be very common. And I would agree with that, actually. I would think life may well be common in, in the Milky Way. We may well find it on Mars within the next ten years or so, or Jupiter's moon Europa. But then when you ask the question... How long? What's the likelihood that simple life, single-celled things, will end up building a civilization? Then, if you look at the history of life on Earth, it took nearly four billion years to go from the origin of life to it took three and a half billion years to get anything that you would recognise as complex—a multicellular organism. For three billion years, life was just single-celled things. Admittedly, doing interesting stuff like photosynthesis, quite complicated. So you might look at Earth and say, well, four billion years, that's a third of the age of the universe. So you don't, it's not the origin of life that's the problem. It may well be that, that that transition from simple life to intelligent life and civilizations may Which be extremely unlikely. Which would be just be like accidental environmental mutation? Or? Well, undoubtedly is. I mean, if you look at the story of the, um, the, the origin of Homo sapiens, humans, we only emerged about 200,000 years ago right. in the Rift Valley of Africa. And in fact, all the big jumps, there have been three or four jumps in, in, in the fossil record, as far as we can tell, in, in human a hominin brain size. So hominins are the, the things like Australopithecus yes. around four million years ago, Homo erectus, uh, those things, and then, and then the things that Homo heidelbergensis that became Neanderthals and then Homo sapiens. All those jumps occurred in the Rift Valley, as far as we can tell. And that's reasonably well accepted. So there's something about the Rift Valley that's special, something about perhaps the way that climate shifts in the Rift Valley, the selection pressures in that place, that subtropical valley. 
sort of moving down through Africa. So it seems that you needed not only the, our ancestors, the, the Australopithecines, which were basically upright chimpanzees, right. but you needed somewhere to, to, to apply pressure such that the Australopithecus afarensis was a... Australopithecus afarensis. That, that, that thing, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's, yes. There's, there's a lot of Australopithecus. If you take about, honestly, if, if you say we're going to have a debate about hominin evolution, uh, the, the, the details of it with a load of anthropologists, and you say, let's go and meet in a pub somewhere, they won't even agree on the pub. <laughs> you can't even, you, they don't agree on anything. But the, bro, the broad sweep is agreed upon. Yes. And, um, so, so that's the broad sweep is that for four million this years. This is the skull of one anthropologist who killed this other anthropologist at the age of the skull. Maybe that was it. it was is that the octopus talking? <laughs> maybe, maybe it was arguments between anthropologists that yeah. led to the increases in brain no, size because they just increased the number of skull fossils. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so but, we know there was something down there that we, could it could yeah. have been something environmental that created something dietary where they're either eating more protein, which is making their brain size increase. Yeah, or... the, there's some suggestion that it's interesting that one of the big increases in brain size and in the number of hominin species happened 1.8 million years ago. There's a big increase. So there's five or six different. There's Australopithecus and um, Homo erectus and things around at that time. Uh, and also the brain size increases. And that's correlated, actually, interestingly, with the time when the Earth's orbit was at its most elliptical. So the Earth's orbit oscillates in very complicated ways, actually, over 100,000-year timescales, 400,000-year timescales. And one of the big oscillations um, is a 400,000-year oscillation when it comes elliptical and then more circular, elliptical and more circular. And it's to do with resonances with Jupiter, gravitational interactions with Jupiter and, thing, and other things. And then... Um, so there's, some, there's a theory that actually when the Earth's orbit's very elliptical, then it gets quite complicated. But the, you know, the, the Earth's spin axis also precesses around every 20-odd thousand years or so and traces out an arc in the sky. And that's amplified. The effect of that on the climate is amplified when the, when the orbit is elliptical. And it corresponds, interestingly, there's a correlate between increases in brain size in the Rift Valley and the times when the Earth's orbit is elliptical. Um, so there's a, the theory is that the climate change, that the rapid climate change which appears to happen at those times, by rapid I mean over thousands of years, but relatively rapid, is a contributing factor to the increase in brain size. So then, then you're saying that that, so that means the structure of the solar system is important, which undoubtedly is. The, the fact that you've got this giant planet Jupiter in the right place to deflect a lot of asteroids, for example, but also to induce resonances in sure. the Earth's orbit and changes which actually contributed to this evolutionary path. That suddenly you start thinking, if you're a biologist or anthropologist, well, this is, we're lucky. We're so, so lucky to be here in this form. Shit. But not so, only, so, so maybe it is, maybe it's likely, maybe it's yeah. possible. But I think it's also, but I think it's also, it also seems to become apparent that. Uh, scientists of several different, I guess, seemingly disparate uh, disciplines should all be communicating at, because of reasons like, you know, because if you're just, if you're just a, if you're a biologist, maybe you're not thinking about, you know, like what the, uh, what the elliptical orbit uh, structure of the yeah. earth. Around. And so how it sounds like you cover a lot of different disciplines. This is one of the big delights in making these documentaries that you do that and you get to talk to academics from different disciplines and, um, and it's true that, that that work came from interdisciplinary research. And I, we do. It's a legitimate criticism that we get put into silos. I mean, I'm a particle physicist by... That's my research. Um, so, so that's a very niche 
area in a sense. You're very focused on a machine like the Large Hadron Collider. Yes. And then you do that work. Um, but it, it, to, to bring one of the great goals of many universities now is to try and get these academics together. So don't have the biologists up in their building and the the anthropologists, yes, you have to put them in a cage. <laughs> Otherwise, they get violent. But you know, and the chemists, and the, and get everyone together because you get jumps like this. Because an astronomer, if, you, if an astronomer sees a cycle, a four hundred thousand year cycle in some fossil record, they'll immediately go, "Well, actually, the, the Earth, one of the big cycles that, that happens in the Earth's orbit, is four hundred thousand years. So, is that correlated? Wow. And and that's this valuable. Are you uh, are you a big science fanatic? I've been on the show twice. Okay. So yes, no, I'm a huge yeah. science fanatic, actually. Yeah, in an amateur way. Yes, I am, which, is, which fascinates me because I wanted to know whether the climate became warmer and colder or just more extreme on the on the oscillations when it gets more. It's, you know, the data is actually um, the, the best data is to do with lakes. They call them ephemeral lakes, so lakes that appear and disappear. Uh-huh. So it looks like a rainfall. One of the big pieces of data that fits in is a variation in rainfall, right. rapid variation in rainfall. One of the, th- the, the thing that's not agreed on, so, so the, the timescales that I've just spoken about are relatively well agreed. Now, what's not agreed on is what possible selection mechanism could there be? Because remember, we're talking about a thousand year, a few thousand year variations, whereas Darwinian selection happens on, in now, it happens to individuals and populations. So one of the theories is that um, there's, a, there's a Garden of Eden in the Rift Valley at some of these times. It's raining, there's plentiful stuff, so the population increases. And then a thousand years later, it's arid and dry. So you've got this big population challenged by the aridity, new aridity that happened. So, so they, that population, there's pressure on it. And could it be that then the, the, the more intelligent ones are more adaptable? Or could it be that there's a selection for the group, uh, individuals that work in groups, so you get bigger tribes, because that's the way to survive this, this harsh onset of, you know, the, land, the, the years of plenty have gone and there's a, it's difficult to find food. So that's debated very heavily. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's good to say what's speculation and what isn't. But there's a big academic debate about this at the moment. I've always, I've always, had, I always kind of like to imagine, you know, what if we had a less intelligent cousin species that had survived? Like, what if there was... Well, Neanderthals were, were called the Republican Party. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> well, Neanderthals, we, we, we certainly coexisted with Neanderthals, but whether they were less intelligent or not is a good question. Yeah. There's this kind of... You know, uh, sort of folk we interbred with them, it? didn't well, we? Well, we did, yeah. And and uh, they were around, and and it may have, yeah. The, the, but the common yeah. myth, I think, that we, <laughs> well, he's, he's like to, yes. we got in there. Yeah. Look at that thing over there. Let's, yeah, I like them strong. Yeah, but the, the idea that they were somehow less intelligent is not actually supported. There's a lot of debate about that now. So it looks like there's no real basis to expect they were, to think they were less intelligent than us. Yeah, I know it's become this Neanderthal. They have bigger brain size. Yeah. They have yeah. bigger cranium. So is there a school of thought where they have just blended in the population and just well they have this D- the, the DNA is what is it up to 3%, 3% something I think. Like but it's not yeah. that they're, dif- they're different enough that we yeah. don't there's not like a direct I mean the ancestors are a bit farther back I think than it's, you would assume the, the, what's thought is that there was a previous radiation so the Homo sapiens got out of the Rift Valley it's thought around 60,000 years ago so, so that's when, when our species left Africa in numbers anyway and they got into Europe about 43,000 years ago Staggered into America about fifteen thousand. I always say in, in Britain, I go, that explains a lot, doesn't it? And get a big laugh, right? But the Neanderthals were undoubtedly um, probably evolved in 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 northern Europe in that area. So they probably evolved from Homo, Homo heidelbergensis, which mm-hmm. is a previous radiation out of Africa. 
That's yeah. what. But again, there's disagreement amongst anthropologists. But yeah, that's probably what happened. Maybe they just started IKEA. I think they did, yeah. and that's that explains why the furniture is named what it is. It's just like incoherent garble. Yeah. But they may have started painting, mightn't they? They may be, they're the ones that seem to be the hand yeah. painting. And the yeah, there's there's some cave paintings cave in paintings. Uh, northern Spain that have been dated. Uh, they're they're older than forty one thousand years, and the reason is the reason you have to say that is because they date it by looking at the they do radioactive dating of the limestone that forms over the paintings. Mm. You can't date the pigment, it's too old. But you can date the, the formations over it, the limestone that runs down the cave walls. Oh, wow. So you know it's older than that. And it's interesting because some of these paintings are, as I say, older than 41,000 or so. And there's no evidence of Homo sapiens being in that region before about 43,000. So there's a very tight... It could have been that this was these paintings were Homo sapiens, the first ones, or it could have been they were Neanderthals that were doing cave art... In, in, in Europe, it's hotly debated at the moment, but it's interesting. So they could have been on the way to a civilization. They could have been on the way that these ideas, there were ideas in their heads, that there's representational art in these caves that could have been from them and not us. I think so much of the... I, I re, it really does... I, I had a moment a couple of weeks ago where I really... Because, you, you know, I'll read science blogs and I just kind of breeze over them and go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah oh, they discovered this dinosaur, you know, these, this... This, this species that they thought that it was brand new. Oh, it was a new dinosaur species, and he existed, you know, for 15 million years. And you yeah. kind of read that, and it's sort of disposable information. And then I go, we don't really want to think about the idea of 15 million years, yeah. of something being around 15 million years. And that, you know, we're just a, an infinitesimal speck. Oh, it's, it's incredible that, that if you think that Homo sapiens got out of Africa 60,000 years ago, and by... You know, not long after that, we start seeing the origins of agriculture and, and civilization emerges pretty quickly. So we, we've been 200,000 years from emergence as a species to walking on the moon. That's, that's not bad. Does it seem like a switch just flicked and all of a sudden, man? <clears throat> well, it seems like the, these step changes in brain size are relatively quick. It's, it's, it's about over 4 million years or so since you get the first Austral, Australopithecus afarensis, as you said. Um, and, and that's basically a chimpanzee, an upright chimpanzee. So you, you seem to go pretty quick once it starts. But then, the, well, the interesting thing is, before that, you have 3.8 billion years of um, you know, complexity, but not anything you'd call intelligence in terms of civilization. So how much are we affecting our own future evolution with technology and... and we're, we're huge. We're fast. I mean, the, the reason all, all this interdisciplinary stuff is possible is because of the computer, which starts in 1990. And now the, the, the growth of science and the, everything yeah. all comes from that. Because we can, we, you can just be reading science. We can read it suddenly. It's in the news. It's, like, it's extraordinary... And it puts everything together. Information yeah. is absolutely available for us to share. So that's why I think we've had this huge explosion of knowledge. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm, it, I'm, it concerns me a bit. That, right? Um, AI is coming. We're going to be fucked. Robots are going to kill us, right? There's a great... I, I, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> it's going to happen. I'm going to plug wow. a, a film that a friend of mine wrote, Alex Garland, who wrote 28 Days Later. So you might yes. know that, right? But he's got a great film called Ex Machina that's just, I just come out. Have you seen it? I think I saw Ex Machina. It's out, it's out in the UK. It's out here, I think, in April, I believe. Then I but haven't it's about, seen it. It's about an AI. Is, is that with Chappie? No, no, no. It's not Chappie. Oh. Who's in it? Um, 
Oh, well, see, Carl, I is Antonio remember. Banderas in it? No, I saw I saw an AI. Oh, that movie. was Zorro. Uh, no, yes. no, 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 no. Uh, I saw an AI movie starring <laughs> Antonio Banderas that was that was like you know that, that a, a machine became self aware that in this world it was kind of it was really kind of an iRobot. Yeah. Well, what does oh, what does, does it presuppose? This is a great film. The, the idea is that the, the, so the AI is a, is, a, is a beautiful woman. And um, he, she's been created by this guy who's kind of like an Elon Musk type character. I think he, he got his money from inventing a search engine mm-hmm. in the film. And he lives out in the woods and he's, he's got this, he's a genius and he's got this AI. And the, the kind of conceit is so he gets someone from his company to come and he wants to, him to do a, a Turing test, a Turing test on mm-hmm. her, yep. which is the idea that you would, how would you know this thing was conscious? Right. You'd interact with it, talk to it. And if you perceive it to be conscious, then, it, then it's conscious. And so the film develops from there. So you want to know why is this a beautiful woman that he's created? And what, well, you know, you might guess why, why you might create a beautiful woman. Yeah, but but it's it's a, it's a great film actually. But yeah. but his Alex's point, I talked to him a lot about it, and his it his idea the boners. Yeah, sciency is things that, that's the, what drives the web, isn't it? But but the, <laughs> the idea is that that, that, that that he thinks that they, they will be better than us. He says that a lot. They will be better than us. They will be they will, uh, the the things that we create. These conscious robots, our future. Um, that these things will be. We should celebrate the fact that they will be more capable, more intelligent, more physically capable. They are the future of the human race, and he thinks that's great. I'm with now, that. I am too. I've always yeah. I've always thought it was a fascinating idea yeah. that we, you know, in order to speed up the next phase of evolution, that we create the thing that is that, or we create the thing that that hastens that. Uh, you know, it's, it's but a, you can also travel, time travel. You can go off for a hundred thousand years and yeah. it doesn't die. Yeah. So you know, you could have a personality based on you that talked a bit like, or like Brian, you know, programmed with all of his thoughts and looking like him, but it could go off. And, and emerge in 200,000 years yeah, somewhere else. That leads to an interesting thing, though. You go back to cosmology and life in the universe. There's a thing called the Fermi Paradox, um, which is named after Enrico Fermi. Fermilab. Uh, Fermilab, I've yeah. been. Uh, yeah, I used to work there, actually. You did? Yeah. Just yeah. happened to be driving by one ago. day when I was touring and doing touring comedy in, in Illinois, and the exit for Batavia was right there. I'm like, oh, my God, that's Fermilab. Yeah. And I was writing for Wired magazine at the time, so I just drove up, and I'm like, I work for Wired, and I'm just here to maybe do a story. And they said, come on in. Gave us a tour, and they said, we're shutting down soon because CERN is going to take over, but they showed us the whole... It was incredible. Yeah, Tevatron. It's an incredible yeah. machine. So one of the only ones you can see is on the surface because there's a lot of room there. You know, so yeah. it's not like in Europe where you have to build them underground. So you can see the the lake. You can see the lake. Yeah, the, you can see everything. They took the building, so you could see everything. Okay, so I'm sorry. So yeah. the, the Fermi paradox. But a Fermi paradox is essentially that that let Fermi's real question was where are they? Right, where are the civilizations? Because if you look at the galaxy, so the Milky Way galaxy has been around pretty much for the age of the universe, you know, 12 billion, 13 billion years or something, there's been a galaxy here. 200 billion stars, we said, with many planets, a huge amount of time for life to develop and, and, and civilizations to emerge on other planets. And if you get to the point, you might say, well, they die out. Um, you know, they're the bio- biological civilizations. They're down. But if you get to the point where you can build self-replicating machines, so if you accept the fact that you can build an, an AI, so there's nothing special about consciousness. If you have a sufficiently powerful computer, you can do it. And you can build a self-replicator. We, well, we can build 3D printers already, so we're not mm-hmm. far off. We, we, you know, we can, yeah. And we can build printers that print parts for the printers. So it's not impossible to imagine. Give us a thousand years 
from now. Give us probably a hundred, but give us a thousand. You could imagine we could build replicating AIs. And then, as Eric said, you've got these things that can go out into, the, let's say, go into the asteroid belt, do a bit of mining, rebuild, go off again. It's hop. called the board, guys. They're called von, well, they're called von Neumann machines after the mathematician <sighs> von Neumann who studied it. But you can show that with even with our technology or conceivable technology, you can cover the Milky Way galaxy with these things, these probes, these intelligence gathering things, or whatever you call them, in in timescales of a hundred thousand years or so, certainly a million years. Let's say. Have you been watching? But a million years is nothing. Right. No, that's the right. point. So, so the question, where are they? I think is quite a profound one, and and the answer might be. The answer to that paradox might be, it could be that we can't build those things. It could be there's a problem with AI that we haven't seen and it's difficult to build. I don't think so, though, actually. It could be, actually, more likely, I think, that civilizations are just rare. So to get to the point where your biology is complex enough and your intelligence is complex enough that you can build these things is just so rare that we might be Without destroying themselves too because there was also the theory that nine out of ten civilizations approaching nuclear power would actually destroy themselves sure yeah well we which had is a, rather a good because it means that the only words to survive are the fittest to survive <laughs> yeah there's a, there's a philosophical idea called the great filter which is the so, so you can say if it's true that there are very few if any civilizations is the filter in our past so that would be like a biological filter. Mm. Is it that it's just complex life is so unlikely that we've passed through the filter? So we actually are. We're, we're here and we're going to be there. Or is the filter in our future? Could it be that at this point we where you have your nuclear weapons yeah. and, and you, you get to the point where you, you've got to manage a civilization, you've got climate change and those things, you threaten your, your environment. Could it be that the filter is there and it's just difficult to get through, and so we're not going to get through it. Could that be the reason that we don't see any evidence of any other civilization? Well, it is. I think part of the challenge would be creating the machine and then getting the machine just past the hump where it could then take it from there and sort of and figure out whatever we couldn't. You know, it's like I've taught you all I can, and then the machine would have to take over, and then yeah. of course realize that we were pointless, and then use this as food, but <laughs> you think or fuel or what have you. Batteries um, like the Matrix. Batteries like yeah. the Matrix. What do you think of the idea of the, the this theory that perhaps everything we know is essentially like a simulation? <laughs> well, essentially, it's not as wild as you might. That, that's another answer to this, that there were actually other civilizations. Again, it's based on the, the idea that if you look at our computer technology and the trajectory of it, then it, it, if, if you carry on then it looks like we could simulate relatively real worlds in, in the not-too-distant future. And then, so it might be statistically likely that actually we do live in a simulation because mm. that, that would be... Because we'll be doing it. Yeah. So, so you, and it's true, you know, give us... Let's say we survive. Give, give us... Our civilization's been around for at most 10,000 years. The te- science, the technological civilization, you could say dates back to Newton, let's say, arguably, so 1680s, when you get modern science... And so in 300 years, 350 years, we go from Newton to the, to the moon and to building Voyager that leaves the solar system. We've got spacecraft out there in interstellar space. We've got computing power like we couldn't imagine. This is 400 years. Give us 10,000, double the length of time. <clears throat> what are our computers going to look like? Well, they could simulate reality. Uh, extremely powerfully, you would think. I mean, at one so, time... So, so people may say, I don't necessarily subscribe to this view. I, I, there's no evidence for that. It's more of a philosophical standpoint but it's kind of interesting at least to accept the facts that if the point is i think it's missed a lot people think this is wild stuff the point is could you imagine us doing it in ten thousand years 
And the answer is yes. Yeah, of course. Sure. So therefore, why didn't somebody else do it? Or perhaps they did. Is the, is the kind of well, logic? Well, I mean, you know, you... essentially, if you, I mean, it, we're just talking about, we're talking about technology basically shortening distances. So the idea of, you know, at one time the ocean being, oh, well, how would you ever get across that? And then, you know, people figured it out. But, and then time being a, you know, a, a distance, you know, like, well, if you can bend time, if you can control, then you could travel to, you know. You could travel across the, the the universe. Well, you can. I mean, you can bend time in that sense because the, the, the Einstein tells us the closer you get to the speed of light, the, the slower your clock ticks. You wrote a whole book about that. Why does equals mc squared available from Decapo Press? <laughs> yes, it's very. Thank you, Brad. <laughs> of course, get it on Amazon. I, I, Use the Nerdist link. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Everyone's plugging everything. <laughs> <laughs> But you're, but you're right. So, so the, the number I, n- I always have in my head is for the protons at the Large Hadron Collider. So they go around that 16-mile in circumference accelerator 11,000 times a second, which is 99.999999% the speed of light. Jeez. And at that speed, time passes 7,000 times more slowly for the protons than it does for the experimenters sat there watching them go around. 7,000. So that's a, big, that's a big effect. And So you might say, well... So the proton That's is in agony because it's just bored for seven well, no. Because you see, for, but the, 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 the corollary of that is, well, yeah, but what does it look like for the proton? If the proton had a wristwatch, what a proton's wristwatch look like? But if it had a wristwatch, it would see time pass at the normal, the normal rate. Yeah. Right. So what, but something has to change, though. And what changes is the distance. So the, the, the LHC ring is not 16 miles in circumference. It's about 12 feet in circumference to the protons. So the flip side is, so distances shrink sure. as you approach the speed of light in your reference frame. Mm. Time passes more slowly in the different reference frame. And this is the way the universe is constructed. So the, 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 the reason we find that weird is because we talk about distances in space and distances in time. When actually what Einstein discovered is that's not right. They're not observable quantities everyone agrees on. What, is, what everyone does agree on is distances in space-time. So you've got to change. You've got to change to saying, what's the distance between um, my alarm clock going off in the morning in my bedroom and um, me making my toast in the kitchen at uh, one hour later? There's a distance in Einstein's theory between those two events. So it's distances in space and time together between events. And everyone agrees on that. That's, saw, the, that's the key point about Einstein's I theory. Saw a, I saw a special with um, Kaku, uh, Michio Kaku. Michio. And, he, his, the, and they had... They had different people in the street count out what they thought was 60 seconds. And they found, at least according to what they said, that younger people calculated it differently than older people. That there seemed to be some sort of a, you know, when you're younger, you perceive time a different way. Than- <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't an old one. They'd be going, one... Um. <laughs> You've got to be in a city where people can actually count to 60. Did you think of that? <laughs> I should say that. I love Oldham. But I mean, you know, but, you know, how much, of it, how much of it bleeds into just our day-to-day perception and the, and the idea that, you know, because my dad, the older my dad got, he'd go, well, years are turning into months and months are turning into days. And it's just, and it, you know, when I was younger, I'm like, you're a crazy old man. But now as I'm starting to get older, I, I can't believe it's 2015. It just felt like it was 2014. Is, it, is, there something, is there something biological on the way that we perceive time that erodes or changes there, there, over time? There, there, there is, undoubtedly, but that's, that's, relativity is completely different to that. This is built in, this is the same for a, a proton as it is for a living being. It's a, time 
genuinely is is a thing that you you don't speak of on its own. In, in the, the universe is not built like that. So it's kind of a, a prejudice of ours mm-hmm. that we see space and time as different things. And in Einstein's theory, indeed, they're almost the same. They're not quite the same. They're, they're, there's a it's a theory of a four dimensional universe so time is a dimension like space in einstein's theory but of course we don't have freedom of movement through time we have a bit of freedom in uh, the speed we go into the past the speed we go into the future relative to somebody else we have complete freedom actually if we move fast relative to other people we can slow our clocks down relative to them vice versa um, but we can't get into the past so it's not a, it's, it's a it's a slight difference in the geometry because obviously we can't we don't have freedom of movement in time sure that's the only difference though in einstein's theory you tried just sending getting... the particle the other way. Does that work? Well, well we do send them <laughs> in Australia. It goes back. the other way. Yeah, yeah in Australia. They can go back in time. Australia, way. just not up here. Uh, yeah, LHC. We, we go both in the LHC. Actually, we go uh, one one way, one the other way, and then collide them together. You're trying to smash them into one another. Well, we succeed six hundred million times a second. Oh my gosh! And recreate conditions that were present less than a billionth of a second. So, what does the data there. look like when when, the, when when that happens? What is oh, it's it that you're pouring <clears> through? It's a terrific mess because we don't. It would be great if we could collide one proton into one proton on at a time but on the average we collide 30 or 35 at a time actually so it's a tremendous mess because only in one of those collisions at if you're very lucky will anything interesting happen and in very few of them will, will something like a higgs particle be produced which is right. what you're looking for so the rest of it is a tremendous mess and so the difficulty the skill in particle physics is taking these essentially digital photographs of this big mess because when you smash two protons together at almost the speed of light these huge energies that were present, as I said, characteristic of the universe as it was less than a billionth of a second after the Big Bang, you make a lot of new particles, you can imagine. It's a big bang, right? And, and so, so it's a mess, the hundreds of particles all in, in the detector. And the trick is you write essentially computer code to go through those millions, hundreds of millions of events, hundreds of millions of collisions, and try and sort out the ones that are interesting. We're looking for in, in that case, we were looking for the Higgs particle. We didn't know exactly what it looked like or what it would decay into. Uh, we had predictions about how it would behave. We didn't know what mass it was. So you're looking for something that you don't know exists right. in a mess of millions of collisions and trying to sort through. And so that's, that's the difficulty in particle physics. I read we the- found it. We well, did mean, find we, it ultimately. We and the universe did it. not employed and not implode when it. When no, it that happened. was always bollocks. That, 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 that was it. But um, we, what we didn't know, and we still don't know precisely, is, is is this exactly the Higgs particle that's predicted by the so-called standard model, which is what Peter Higgs got the Nobel mm-hmm. Prize for? Is it exactly that? The, the LHC turns on actually next month again. Oh, it does. Um, yeah, with uh, uh, with an energy upgrade, it's back up to close to it, if not at its energy that it was designed to be at. It run. Um, it ran at uh, half energy um, when it discovered the Higgs. So, so it's up with a big factor in energy. Um, so so the, the idea now is to make a lot of Higgs particles and analyze them in detail. We want to know exactly how they behave. How does it talk to the other particles? Is it this standard model Higgs? There are theories called supersymmetric theories where there are five Higgs particles rather than one, for example. We don't think that that's what this thing is. We think it's on its own, but we don't know. Exactly. So, so we've got a lot of work to do now to characterize it. It's a new thing. It's like a new planet. Are you, you going to get in the collider to try to get superpowers, or does it not work that way? <laughs> you, like Dr. Manhattan that, asks superpowers that's, over... That's classified. Okay. <laughs> I should ask that question. Maybe like five or six years ago, I read a book called The God Particle, which I think it was Leon Letterman. Yeah, yeah, he won a Nobel Prize. And, uh, and it, was, it took a while for me to get through because I'm not a scientist. And the problem that I was having is that it's I, 
you know, obviously when you, you usually associate when you're reading something, oh, this is – and it's very fat. You can usually do it very quickly. This, this is analogous to this or this is it. But you're reading about quantum physics and the particles and the way – and that I couldn't, I couldn't connect it to anything. So I kept having to stop and go, I think it's like this and I'm trying to envision it. And, uh, and it, it just – it hurt my brain. Quantum theory is we, – we talk about it a lot. I talk about it with Eric a lot because it's, it's, it's an interesting – it's a counterintuitive theory. But we, you, the thing to remember about it is it's 100 years old. Um, it, it's very mature. It, it describes correctly the behavior of every experiment we've seen. Uh, every, every phenomenon in the universe other than gravity is described at its most basic level by a quantum theory. So the way that a transistor works is, is understood by using quantum theory, for example, and they work. So it's, not, it, it's kind of esoteric in the sense that it's a bit difficult, but it's well understood there, is, there, are, there are questions about how you interpret quantum theory and where we go next. And, but but I, I think that it's often... I think the difficulty is, is conceptual rather than technical. I often think it should be taught in schools, actually, really genuinely. Not the, 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 the mathematics can be a bit tricky, although not too tricky, actually. We teach it in first-year physics. It's not horrendous. But, but the, the concepts, I think, are understandable but challenging, and a lot of the confusion comes from concepts that you could discuss with 10-year-olds. Right? There's nothing inherently difficult. It's just that you've got to understand that... How do you describe an electron? Let me describe it this way. So, so what, it's a particle, right? So, but what's, the, what's the, the mathematical description of it? Well, it's something called a wave function. So, so what's that? Well, it's basically... It's like describing the temperature in the room that we're in now. So it's like a, that's called a field in, in physics jargon. So what's, what's the temperature in this room? Well, at every point in the room, you could have a number which tells you the temperature. So, so it's an extended object, a big array of numbers, if you like. And the description of electrons is the same. So it's, it's not a point-like thing in quantum theory. It's, it's described by a field, essentially. And it's described by this thing called the wave function, which is basically a number at every point. It's a, it's a thing called a complex number, so it's a bit different. It's got two bits to it, but it's basically a number. And the numbers tell you the probability that you can find the electron. You will find the electron in that region of space. So that, that's all there is to quantum theory. It's, it's a strange thing because it's an extended description of the particle. But the key, the, the trouble comes interpreting it by what you mean by the probability to find it somewhere. So what do you mean by that? What does it mean to say, well, the electron is has a 25% chance of being over here and a 75% chance of being over there. That's the way the mathematics works. But what, what does that mean for reality? It, what, it, what it means is if you, get 100, if, you, if you get 100 identical electrons and stick them in this room now, and, and you, go and you, you, you measure one of them, you say, where are you? And, and you might find that it's in one corner. And then you set it all up exactly the same, set the whole thing up again, come in, measure it, say, where are you? Then you'll find it somewhere else. And then you come in again, set it all up the same, measure it again, you'll find it somewhere else. And if you count all those probabilities up, just like tossing a coin, then you'll get this wave function out. That's what you'll get. So that's the description of the particle. The key thing is, what do I mean by measure it? What do I mean by that? Because if, if you bounce a particle in and then interact with the uh, electron, you get another wave function, which is still a big ensemble of probabilities. You might you have lost another the 10-year-old by this You point. get another ensemble of probabilities. I would have. No, I've, I've raised it to the level of the podcast now. I don't know. <laughs> okay, good. But it's, but, so the, the, the key thing is what do you mean? So, so you get problems about what do you mean by measure? Do you mean, is it something to do with me extracting knowledge from this thing or whatever? And, 
But the theory itself, the mathematics works, the description works. Every experiment we've ever done at a particle, any particle collider like Fermilab or CERN is in agreement with the predictions of quantum theory. So it works, but it's a bit odd. Why is the behavior so different than anything else? Like, is there, what is the... Well, it's not. But it's, it's, the, the point is that this is the way the universe behaves. So the, the nature behaves like this. The description of nature, the correct description, as far as we know, is quantum theory. Uh, the fact that we don't perceive a quantum world is the interesting question. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's where you where our knowledge, you know, the, the, the proper answer to that is we don't know um, why we don't. There are, there are theories that can suggest and are interpretations of quantum theory that can suggest why we, we, we feel we live in this concrete Newtonian world of particles and solid things, things that are in one place at once and not ten places at once. But actually, the description of this world that works best is a description that tells you things can be in ten places at once or an infinite number of places at once. That's, and that's why the transporters way that will work. Well, well, quant- teleportation works. Yeah. So we do that. You know that that's it's true. It is, there a, is there a We've subquantum world and a subquantum world and a subquantum world? Can, can I just qualify that? Because I'm just Please. conscious of the fact people are listening. Going teleportation works. Right. You, it works for single particles. For single particles. It's been yeah, done yeah, for yeah. single particles. Yeah. No one knows how big scalable that is. But uh, it does work for photons. Pretty yeah. soon we're going to transport Doctor McCoy off. You're not. No, oh, Doctor McCoy is just going to have to get Star Trek's real. Going to get horribly burned. Is warp, is warp speed possible? Can we warp space and go faster than light? Can we do that? I doubt it. All right, fine. Um, You've just ruined it. No, it's well, you can build a time machine in. then. A TARDIS. I keep you keep. You could build a time machine. Yeah. So, uh, so if you could warp space, then you would invert. You would also. Yeah. There's be... um, the, so again, um, the, the, there's, a, there's a paper by Hawking actually that were years ago. I asked him about it. We 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 met Stephen, myself, and Eric in his office. What? Um, we filmed him last year. What? Yeah. yeah the Python reunion. I persuaded Brian to do a joke. <laughs> and I said, "Ask Stephen Hawking if he'd do it." And he got so me said, back. Right. He said, "In ten seconds." He said, "Yes." <laughs> so uh. We found ourselves heading up to Cambridge filming. <laughs> And uh, it was, came after the Galaxy song, and Brian came on the screen. He said, now, the reason I find some of this stuff is problematic is all the sun is not the source of all our power. And he starts bullshitting about the, the song being bullshitting. wrong. Bullshitting. Well, being criticised the song. Yeah. <laughs> I was just there. <laughs> Everything I said was wrong. There behind him appears this wheelchair coming at great speed. <laughs> And as he's going on, it comes slams straight into Brian, knocks him flying, and it's Hawking goes off singing the Universe song in space. Amazing. Yeah. And he came to the last show, mm, and we're about to release him singing our Galaxy song. It says Stephen Hawking sings Monty Python. And where is that? It'll be on Singles Day in April. There'll be oh, this. Uh, so, so, so we had a lovely day. He says, how amazing. We went up to Cambridge. We met the most brilliant man in the world. <laughs> and we filmed a stupid joke. <laughs> it was completely Python-esque. It, was, it reminded me of that sketch. What is the sketch where you have Mount Say Tongue and everybody there? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The, the, yes. And, and you ask him who won the Eurovision Song Contest yes, exactly. in 1963. Yes, yes. Not interested in asking. Do you, feel some, do you feel some pressure when you're around Talking to be like, I should ask him something that I well, need to I, know. I did. That's what I, I. So I asked him about. There's a paper he wrote called the Chronology Protection Conjecture, which is a. Uh, so although in principle it's true that in Einstein's theory you can, it seems you may be able to build wormholes. So these, you know, warp space and time in such a way that you can hop around the universe almost instantly to great distances. Um, and that's what Interstellar is based on. I haven't seen Interstellar, actually, but Kip Thorne, who, who, who advised Interstellar, is one of the greats in general relativity. So it's, 
So in principle, that seems to be true. But it does allow you to have problems with time travel into the past. Mm -hmm. And so Hawking proposed that any theory of gravity, that the future theory of quantum gravity, will be such that you can't build these things, stable wormholes. And, and any, anything that allows you to, in principle, get into the past would be, would be forbidden. The laws of physics would not allow it. But it's true to say that at the moment it's, there's an ambiguity there in, in, in Einstein's theory that it seems you could. We're given, it's true, some sort of matter that doesn't exist, some kind of strange sort of configuration of matter and energy that we don't think exists in nature. But in principle, you could build these wormhole things. When you're, when you're, so, he, so, so I asked him about that. And how, and, does, uh, he, and how does he respond? Does, he, does, it, does it take a minute to form the, or does he have an assistant? Translate. Yeah, yeah. So it takes a, a, a while. So, so the, the way to talk to Stephen, if you can, is is to just uh, yes or no answers are, are easy for, for him. So, so, so you can have a, a good conversation with him, actually. And in fact, there's an ad lib, isn't there, in the in the Python? Well, yeah. Whilst he was asking him a substitute question, he was doing all the thing where he writes, you know, with his eyes and yeah. his things, and then he was actually ad libbing a gag, which we used because we filmed it uh, for <laughs> yeah. what he said after Brian. He hits Brian, which is like. You're being way too pedantic. Yeah. And that was so his ad lib. It came out. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. And luckily we had the camera got it running, so we taped it. You know, it's great. <laughs> He's really more interested in comedy, Stephen, actually. He came to the last night of the show, and Brian and I, we went to, he came to the party office, and I went over to him and I said, I think you, me, and Brian have a great future in comedy. You should <laughs> have. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> by the way, it was like his little, little corner of his mouth rises. It's great. Did you have fun doing those shows, by the way? Yeah. Was it, was it all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. It was good fun. Yeah. Good. Of course. Good. Yeah. Again, you get to days filming with Stephen Hawking. <laughs> <laughs> what a strange yeah. life. Yes. yes, it is. What do you guys talk about when you're discussing quantum mechanics? Do you, go, do you ask him questions or do you... Um, him? Yeah. Do you, what, what do you guys talk about? Uh, we range. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very well-read layman. I mean, I know everything. I mean, nothing about everything, really. So I can, I can ask him anything. He's of interest to me. Yeah. And, and he's I, a very good explainer. Answer. Often I can't answer because you're right. You, you, well, you showed me the, uh, the latest. I, I arrived on, um, when was it? Saturday, I think. And you, you gave me the latest article about the new Planck data, the cosmic microwave background data. Uh, which I hadn't seen, <laughs> and so I got it from, uh, from Eric. And it was BBC website. It's like, well done. Yeah. Yes. But it's very new data that suggests that stars formed later than we had thought in the history of the universe, which you can you can wow. see from the. Was it about like a was it was it uh, was it a hundred million years or was it? I, th- no, I, I, I know the art. I know I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's a little bit later than was previously thought. Yeah. That, that's. A, I mean, it's, it's a, one of the big questions. We were talking about this, actually, about uh, galaxies and supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies and whether they're necessary for the formation. Again, it was a question I couldn't answer I don't, because nobody knows, I think. We were talking about that last night, about how galaxies form. And it's one of the great open questions, actually, how galaxies form. What role does dark matter play in that? Probably a lot, a big role. Um, what, these ma- I mean, the, the black hole at the centre of the Milky Way is about four million solar masses. So how did that get there? Well, is that does that form first somehow at the same time as the galaxy? Not known. Does it bother you that a lot of this you will never know? No, I, I think that's the, the the I think the key to being a scientist is to delight in not knowing. It's to it's to stand on the edge of the known, and and face the unknown with curiosity and delight and and not fear. I think that's one of the great problems we have in our society. Actually, I think it's when people are, are afraid of not of saying we don't know. So when you ask questions like 
what happened before the Big Bang, like say. Well, we, we have some theories. In, it, it sometimes gets a bit semant- into semantics, this, but we have a theories of inflationary cosmology that suggest there was a time before the universe was hot and dense, mm-hmm. which we call the Big Bang, where there's this exponential expansion of space. And the, but, but I think the, 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 what you get, if, if people react to that and say, well, you're playing God or something, you're, you're trying, you know, and, and have a get upset about cosmology. I think it's because people are afraid of, of the delight of saying there are things we don't know. Full stop. I'm not going to go, therefore, I'm going to guess. You know, yeah. the, the, I don't know. We, we don't know this. So we think that, you know, this happened. That's a, that's a human disease born of fear, I think. I think that the, the great thing is to say, I don't know. But I'll try and find I'll out. I'll try to find out. I'll have a look. <laughs> but yeah. I'd be happy not knowing. Feynman always said that. Richard Feynman always gives wonderful quotes about him saying that he delighted in, in, in not knowing. He, he, someone asked him once, are you after a, a, great, a great theory of everything? And he said, no, no, I'm not after that. I don't, I don't know. I just look at bits of nature, little pieces of nature, little things catch my attention. Why are leaves green or something like that? You know? yeah. And I'll just investigate that. And if I find out something quite profound, then so be it. And if I don't, then so be it. I just want to, I'm curious. How, important, how, much, how, how important of a role do you think philosophy plays into like, stir, stirring into the, to the science? <laughs> we, we, we have fun with this, don't we? I, I always say none. <laughs> well, it's all philosophy, really. Isn't it? I mean, isn't science natural philosophy? Isn't that what it was called? Yeah, it was. It was, it was. natural philosophy. It just happened to have some figures at the end of it, as opposed to regular philosophy, which is just bullshit in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like in, in the Human Universe book, actually, which is available. A bit of longer, which, yeah. um, um, I... I, uh, did, I there is Leibniz had an interest in I, I, I wrote about Leibniz because he had a, an argument for the existence of God, proof for the existence of God, which if I remember, and we'll get letters now. If, do any philosophers listen to this? Yes. Did he? Some. Ten. They know how to turn on the radio. Do they or no, do um, they not listen? Yeah, they, they're not sure. They know how to download things. It's progress. <laughs> but, um, the, so, so Leibniz, as far as I know, to summarise, said, said, right, so everything exists has to have a cause or it has to be logically necessary and if it's logically necessary then it must be eternal because it must have always been logically necessary mm-hmm. so there are two categories of things things that are necessary and therefore always existed and things that aren't necessary and therefore must have had a cause so the universe is 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 finite in age as far as we can tell might not be but a, the most common interpretation of the data is it's finite in age therefore it had a cause um and the cause must have been something that's eternal because otherwise we have this infinite regress. And so we'll call that thing God, is, is his basic line of argument. And I think there's something interesting there, if you're talking about, cos- not the God bit, but the, the bit about, the, well, the, it's not sufficient to say, well, the universe just popped into existence. I, don't, I think that's kind of a... The Leibniz was right. That's, that's, that's not right. That, that, philosophically, it's, it doesn't make any sense to say that. You, 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 need, a, you, you need a mechanism. And, and, and if you have a mechanism then that mechanism must always have been there. You know, so, so you can sure. start thinking like that. And I think that's quite useful, actually. And in fact, although this is not why inflationary cosmology exists, inflationary cosmology exists because the data suggests that you could have this theory. But I think it's interesting. I think Leibniz would have quite liked it because it does give you the potential to have something that was always there, which is this inflating universe. And then it gives the potential for that to transform into something that looks like our Big Bang. And whether it did that 
all at once or, in, or whether it does it in little patches giving rise to this thing we call an inflationary multiverse where there are an infinite number essentially of universes like ours and they're being produced all the time this is a theory called eternal inflation is interesting but it's kind of so i think philosophy does have a, a place because it at least stops you saying silly things it stops you just being content with a uh, you know just saying well it's all right there's a big bang Fine. Well, what's you know, that? That's clearly not fine. You clearly, we don't have a proper scientific understanding of of what happened be- before that hot, dense phase, let's say, or, or what happened to, to create. Well, what's what? What is outside the universe? Well, the standard answer is nothing, because um, space time is the thing that, um, let's in standard Big Bang cosmology, came into came into existence at that point. So, so space time, the, the arena itself. You're not to think of the universe as an arena in which galaxies float around like a big box. Mm-hmm. Einstein tells us you think of the space and time itself, the fabric, there's a fabric of the universe. That's the thing that's doing the stretching at the moment. Um, and, and that's the thing that redshifts the light from galaxies. It's the stretching of the, stretching of the arena, if you like, of the space-time, of the fabric itself as the universe goes on, which stretches so the light. outside of the arena is a parking lot. Nope. <laughs> nope. So there's Too nothing. literal. But, but in the inflationary cosmology, then we, we are sort of riding on the back of an of a exponentially expanding space-time that could have always been there. There's even an argument about that, because there's some theorems suggest maybe it couldn't have always been there. So we get technical then. I've Geodesic s- completeness. I have no idea what that means. So I just keep shouting it out. So I'm going to shout it out later. Geodesic completeness? I'm just going to go to the waiter and go, Geodesic completeness. He'll bring you See if anyone cup. can tell me what that means. <laughs> but apparently it suggests that maybe the universe couldn't have been around forever, but I don't know. Well, as maybe we're sort of gliding this in, that was an hour. That flew by. Well, can you believe it? Was it? It was an hour. Yeah, an hour and four minutes. Is it? Holy shit. I know. It's gin, gin time. Gin time for you, Brian. You've been talking and you need a gin and tonic. What? Four cities. Well, before we get to, before we get uh, to the oh. promo part. Oh. <laughs> the only reason. moment. Yes. <laughs> Available from all good ticket outlets. I think you'll find the gas that has been pumped into the room makes it quite difficult to breathe. And then we all. <laughs> uh, what, is your, what is your favorite scientific principle? Like just one scientific principle that you think underscores sort of the beauty of humanity and science and something that you keep going back to and maybe think about over and over again. Would you like my second favorite? Yes. (laughs) 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 My first was silence, obviously. Of course, of course. course. (laughs) Do you have something that you just... I'm one of these people who like to look at the universe without necessarily getting telescopes and going, oh, that's that. So I spend a lot of time in the summer drinking pink wine and looking at the universe because I find it very reassuring that the immensity of the Milky Way and just where we are makes us feel very small and insecure indeed. Mm. So um, I, I find science very reassuring because it's actually things you can read about and learn about and understand. And as opposed to, you know, literature or philosophy or even music, which are things you make up and, and feel, it, there's something real there that you can understand. Yeah, and it's, and it's challenging. It's challenging for human beings, I think, to seek answers because a lot of times you might find out things that are counter to your beliefs and you have, well, to, you have to be able to sure. deal with that. So all, all science, it's, it's, the, the, it's 
prefaced by the statement, of course, we might be wrong. That, that's the, uh-huh. the key to science. And I do think it would be wonderful if every system of thought, every political system, every utterance that anybody made, if Genesis started, well, of course, we might be wrong. But in the beginning, <laughs> I God think the wedding good. service should start with that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we might be wrong, but we Which are would gathered render here the today. following <laughs> ceremony completely uh, inert. Yeah. But, uh, but let's do this. So you should ask yeah. him where they're going to be performing. What four cities are you going to be in, Brian? Oh, we're going to be in uh, New York City on the. Tuesday the 13th or whatever. No, no, no. no, we're going to be in LA. We'll go backwards. Sure. We're going to be in San Francisco on Friday the 13th of March. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to be talking about SETI. We've got um, uh, Seth Shostak, who's one of the great founding fathers of SETI, and Karen Porco. Oh. Uh, you, you, you've had Carolyn on the podcast. I know. I, I, she's never been on the podcast, but, ah. I, but of course I know who she is. And I've, I've been to the... Uh, I went to the the, center, the, the biosphere in uh, in I think it's yeah. in Arizona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she's one. So we're going to talk about the, what we've been talking about: uh, uh, alien life. Is it possible? Is single it. cell? Is it kind of all that stuff. Uh, L.A., which is the day before twelfth, twelfth uh-huh. of March at the. Uh, Mon- the, oh, it's the Ricardo Montalban. The guy from someone tell me the from, from Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan and Fantasy Island. Yeah. Ricardo Montalban. Don't, don't do Fantasy Island. Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, yeah it's Khan. He's Khan. Khan. Yeah, he initially Khan. played Khan, played Khan yeah. in the original series, then he came back and revised revise his role yeah. as Khan in the Star Trek Two. Him and then mm-hmm. Cumberbatch. So his theater. And also he is um, uh, he is also the uh, the peddler of fine Corinthian leather. Ah, he that's was, a car commercial in America. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to have a, amongst other guests, Sean Carroll is going to be on that. You know, Sean Carroll, is cosmologist. He's great. You should have him on this podcast. Okay, actually. brilliant. I've had, I had an online argument. I met him through having an argument about causality and quantum field theory online. Because he took exception to something I said in a lecture, and we had a big argument, and then and then uh, thought, yeah, this is it's cool. Who won? Did you school him? Well, I think I may have. I, I've I won in the sense that I wrote a research paper to answer <laughs> with, with four with three colleagues, which is called causality, manifest causality in quantum field theories. But it's extremely technical and complicated, and I'm not sure any of us really understand it <laughs> although we published it so you can get it so, so there's more work to be done to okay, see okay so LA the 12th uh, San Francisco the 13th yeah and then uh, the, 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 the week before we're in, we're in uh, New York and Chicago out on, on the 5th New York on the 5th Chicago New York on the 5th Chicago on the 7th yeah and we're going to talk about paleontology in Chicago and we're going to be talking about we've got uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson amongst other people yeah, know, in, in New York and we're going to be talking about um, just science that's the wonder of science really well I think it's incredibly important Sounds that great. there are people in the world who can communicate science oh uh, and, and, and Eric might sneak in in LA as well Eric's going to sneak in comedian. Eric's going to sneak in yeah oh, and, but and, that's um, the other good thing is they have comedians each time they have two comedians yeah. right. so I've done it with Stephen Fry and you know we haven't announced all our comedians yet yeah. we've got Maima Bellic as well that, oh Maima Bialik. Alec, um, yeah. she's coming to the LA show. Excellent. She's got a PhD, actually. She is, yeah, in uh, neuroscience, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's going to do wow. it. Um, nice. Yeah. David Cohn, uh, uh, Futurama. Futurama. Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. Futurama is one of the smartest shows on David television. David X. David X. Cohn, sorry. Yeah. So, so we, we have an eclectic mixture of guests, some of which we haven't announced yet, but that's it's fantastic. all going to be. Well, this was uh, an absolutely stimulating and wonderful honor to have you on the show. Brian Cox and no, people you. you have many books that people there's the the one about humanity and the one about quantum uh, uh, the, yeah the quantum universe the quantum universe yeah in there was one of the things I started arguing with Sean about <laughs> so there's some <laughs> stuff in there 
I like that so much of this is, is, is scientists arguing with each other and betting against each other and trying to one-up yes, each other. You just lost a bet to me, though, didn't you? I lost a bet, yeah. I, I said that Manchester United, I felt, were going to come second in the league. And, and if they did come <laughs> second in the league, then I would uh, buy... Uh, Eric, a bottle of Dom Runar 2004 <laughs> champagne. Ah, and, uh, nice. and, and Eric had to buy me a bottle if they um, did come second. And uh, unfortunately, they, the, one hour later, they lost. No, they drew, didn't they? Drew yeah, against they West Ham. You, know, you have no idea what I'm talking about, have you? Nah. You're just looking at me going, soccer, soccer, about? soccer, soccer ball. Yeah, so now I don't think they're going to come second. I'm so not, I might just cave. By the way, I'm, I'm, very, I'm, in, I'm very atypical. I don't, I don't understand any sports. So it's not just that it's a foreign yeah. sport. It's, it's, any, right. it's, it's any sport. It's yeah. any sport. But if, if, I feel like you would be like into English Premier League soccer. Like, like just like that, your one sport. I don't think so. Well, yeah, it's, cricket. it's not going to get. It's going to be cricket. It's going to be cricket. Yeah, which to me is about as easy to understand as quantum mechanics. Yeah, it's yeah. very similar. Yeah, yeah. but uh, thanks for being here, and Eric. Thank you for sitting in. My pleasure. Eric just happened to da- come along with Brian, and, 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 and we, of course we had to. And sit now sit. they must go drink. It's a delight. Thank you. For it, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny, like watching scientists one up each other the way that comics one up each other with jokes. It's like, well, I'm going to one up you with a research paper instead of a simple dick joke. Uh, so, well done, Mr. Cox, uh, Mr. Idle. Nice to see you. Uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thank you very much. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.